The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Praise God. Right towards the beginning of the New Testament, before Luke. Our title today is Come Close. And what we're going to do is focus on just a few of the almost countless reasons that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the focal point of our faith. And it's really the only hope for all mankind. Uh, The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that our faith is in vain. Catch that. That's a big deal. Our faith is in vain if Jesus did not rise from death. That means this is a linchpin to what we're doing here. This matters greatly. Um, He did rise from the dead, and that's that's why we're here. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus is both a declaration and an invitation. It is a declaration of total victory over sin, death, and hell, and it is an invitation for us to join him in that victory by faith. So praise God for that. Um, Now, before we read Matthew chapter 28, which records the most important event in all of history, um, I want to take a moment and just give you a brief summary of how we got to this point and why it matters. And the reason I want to do that is because the Bible is not a fragmented grouping of inspiring stories uh, and memorable quotes. Sometimes we treat it like that, unfortunately, but that's not how the Bible's written. Uh, It is not just a story, it is the story, and it is primarily God's story, but because of his mercy and love towards us, he has also made it our story. And so I'm super grateful for that. The focus of the Bible is upon God and what he's doing, but thankfully, because of his mercy, grace, and love for us, he's swept us up into his story. Praise him for that, okay? So up until... Uh, Matthew 28, the extremely abridged version, all right? So the Bible says in the beginning, God created the earth. He created man and woman. He put them in a garden. Everything was perfect. He gave them one command. He said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Our first parents disobeyed God, decided they knew better than him, uh, which is kind of the root of most sin. We end up thinking we're we're smarter than God. And so uh, they decided they knew better, and they were going to go ahead and do it anyway. So the result of that is exactly what God told them. Spiritual death ensues. As soon as that happens, God comes along, and and, and while he's doling out consequences, he says to Satan that uh, he's going to put issues or enmity between uh, the seed of the woman and between the seed of the serpent, and ultimately that the seed of that woman was going to crush that serpent's head. And that was uh, what is referred to in a theological term as the Proto-Evangelion, and that means first gospel. So as soon as... As we mess things up, God was already rolling out the plan to fix it, already letting us know, hey guys, you messed up, but I've got a plan. This is going to come back around. And so on the story goes, God, God uh, selects a people to begin a process of, of un- unfolding his redemptive plan through history. He calls a guy named Abraham uh, out of his land, and <clears throat> that guy obeys by faith, and then he has some sons, and those are the patriarchs, so it goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has a bunch of kids. Uh, Not too long, they all end up in slavery in Egypt. That lasts roughly 400 years. God comes mightily, uses a guy named Moses to come, demand of the leader of that time, let my people go so that we can worship our God. That guy also thinks he's smarter and tougher than God and finds out in short order that that is not true. And so God's people are released. Uh, They leave Egypt. They go into 40 years of wandering in the wilderness where God teaches them how much he loves them and how much uh, he is worthy of their trust. So they're in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering, learning how to trust God, learning how to hear his voice. God then fulfills his promise to take them into the promised land. They reach the promised land. Uh, God helps them defeat all the enemies that are in there. They end up being able to settle there. Uh, There's a time where they're uh, ruled by God alone. Then they don't do so good with that. Then there's the time of the judges, and then they decide they want a king. Uh, God says, it's not going to go good for you, but I'll give it to you if you want it. Gives them a king. Uh, just like God said, it didn't go good. That lasts a while. On through uh, some more 
of the history of the story, God is continually throughout there. He's, he's dropping breadcrumbs. He is foreshadowing over and over again. He's telegraphing the fact that he's got a plan. Something's coming down the pipeline, sometimes more overtly than others. But over and over again, he continues to speak this message of hope to his people. Through events, through foreshadowing, through the mouth of the prophets, he continues over and over again to say, there's, there's going to be a Messiah coming. There's going to be a time. There's going to be a point of reckoning uh, for sin and death, and I'm going to conquer those things, and, and we're going to have reconciled relationship again. The, the way I created this thing is how we're going to get it back. That's what it's going to go to. In comes Jesus, right? That's what Christmas is about. The Lord of glory is born in a manger in Bethlehem. He lives an absolutely perfect life, never sins once, doesn't cheat. See, some people think because Jesus was a God-man that he cheated. Jesus had to live a spirit-empowered life, tempted all the ways we are, just like we have to, and yet he did not sin. And that is why he was able to fulfill his mission of standing in as the final atoning sacrifice to pay the price that we had ran up, right? We ran the credit card till it wouldn't work anymore. Jesus had to come and pay the bill. And he did. He paid with his life. He died on the cross. Uh, but while he was alive, he said, if you destroy this temple three days later, I'll rise it. And you better believe three days later that happened. And that's what we're talking about today. And that's where we find ourselves in Matthew 28. I don't know if I could have shortened that history anymore, but that's essentially the Bible up to the point we're at. Okay, so give me some slack. All right? Amen. I want you to know that because if you don't understand the rest of what happened and how this fits into the context of the overall narrative of redemption, this may not make a lot of sense to you. So, and, and this is... This is part of why the resurrection is so important. Okay, so now we're in Matthew chapter 28. Here we go. We're going to read the whole thing to the glory of God. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. That's kind of a bro move. Right? <laughs> Just, I'm going to move this. I'm going to sit on it. I don't know. It feels tough to me. I like it. Uh, and his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Why were there guards? Um, the, the, the Jewish leaders of the time thought that somebody was going to try to steal Jesus' body and fake the resurrection. They knew what he was talking about. They knew he was talking about he was going to come back from the dead. They did not want that to happen because, you know, when you kill a guy, you don't want him to come back from the dead and kind of prove that everything he said was right. So uh, they posted some guards there. And uh, those guys didn't do good when the angel of the Lord showed up, obviously. So uh, they shook for fear of him and became like dead men. These guys passed out. Uh, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go and quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going Ahead of you into Galilee, there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled... With the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. That's always confused me because this just shows the ignorance of deception. Those guys would have had to have a serious case of narcolepsy to not hear a super heavy rock being moved, right? And then them scurrying into the tomb and pulling Jesus' body out. I don't know. It's crazy what people will believe. Okay, verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Praise God for his perfect word. Amen. 
Uh, it is important that we see the resurrection first as a declaration of total and complete victory because without that, I think we will miss some of its beauty as an invitation. Uh, it is an undeniable reality that the scriptures harmonize perfectly to joyously proclaim the triumphant conquest of our risen king. Let me just read you a few. This is by no means exhaustive. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10. It says that the purpose and grace of God has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 55, it mocks our former adversary, death, when it says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Verse 56, for sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and the Lord Jesus himself leaves no doubt when he himself declares in Revelation 1.18, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's just three examples. The, the harmony of the scriptures is to declare loudly and uh, undeniably that the resurrection of Christ is a, is a declaration of total victory over sin and death. Jesus won the battle, the war, the whole shebang, all right? He won, which is beautiful. Part of that Part of us knowing that, that it is this declaration of total victory, uh, helps us to understand why it's so beautiful that, it, that the resurrection is also an invitation to us to partake in that victory, okay? The resurrection is an undeniable declaration of the culmination of God's plan of redemption. It declares that God is worthy to be trusted. It fulfills every promise that he made to save us. It declares that God is powerful, because all the forces of darkness took their best shot and couldn't stop or even slow his grand design. And it declares loudly and undeniably that God truly loves us and he desires to be with us forever. Even as the resurrection is a powerful and resounding declaration of all these things, it is also a precious invitation to us. Throughout the scriptures, God has constantly made clear that he desires an intimate, close, and loving relationship with us. That's a big statement, and I think because it's sometimes difficult for people to believe, I'm going I'm to give you some scriptures. I'm going to back up what I said. Let me say it again so we know what we're doing here. I said throughout the scriptures, God has constantly made clear he desires an intimate, close, and loving relationship with us. Okay, That's hard for us to relate to in varying degrees for various reasons, but let's just establish the premise of what God wants. I don't know if you want a close, intimate relationship with God today. I don't know if you think that's possible. But let's just establish what the scriptures say, which is how we know what God thinks about anything. Let's see what they say about it. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but it is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Psalm 145 18 says this, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. And James 4.8 says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That verse is real sweet in the first part. James is a firecracker though, so he's going to put stuff on the back end about repent, you know what I mean? I, just, I mean, I like James, but um, you got to read the whole verse, man. You can't just say the sweet part at the beginning. If you got a little card in your fridge or something that just says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you, I want you to go home and fill out the rest of that verse, all right? Put it on there. It's important, all right? Uh, here's, here's the truth, though, right? L let's be honest. Some of us struggle to really believe this or trust it, that God desires close, intimate relationship with us, even though the, the, the verses throughout the Bible make it very clear God has, has shown us and told us in, in more ways almost that can be counted that what he wants is close, intimate relationship with us. He wants relationship with us. But some of us struggle to believe or trust this. Um, for some of us, we had the old saying that talk is cheap, uh, proven true too many times. And so we read stuff like this, and we begin to think about other situations, relationships that we've had, things where we feel like we've been failed or violated or whatever it is. And um, 
that makes it difficult for us to trust what it is God's saying here, or even desire close, intimate relationship with God, which when we're in that place, uh, the truth is we're probably not in close, intimate relationship with anybody, um, but we'll work on that in just a second. Um, some of us have been hurt by unkept promises. Some have been devastated by those who uh, were supposed to love them and uh, hurt them instead. Some people just feel that they need proof. They need proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be and was about what he claimed to be about. Um, <clears throat> by way of example, I know that's true. There, there are some people that it's maybe, I think there's always a personal root that, that comes down to objections and doubts typically, but uh, there's a few times in my life that I've, I've done something very, very foolish, and, and I'm hoping I'm not the only one in here. Have you guys ever seen a post online with like 100 or 200 comments on it, and um, instead of scrolling on like someone that has a purpose for their life and something to do, instead you click it and you get sucked into the abyss of, of reading all those comments. Uh, there's some chuckles, nobody's admitting it. I'm assuming I'm not the only person that's got into a, a thread of comments before that uh, wasted way more time than I'd want to admit. But So that has happened, and, and in one of those situations I encountered this guy's comment um, and this guy was, he was definitely a troll, um, and, and not the cute kind from that new movie that pooped marshmallows, I don't mean that, with rainbow hair and stuff that grows out, I mean the kind that sits behind a keyboard and says stuff that they would never say to somebody in person, right? I'm fond of saying that keyboards are like alcohol, people get real tough and real brave sitting behind that keyboard, but it's like, let me give you an address and I'll meet you and we'll talk about this, let's see if your tone changes, right? <laughs> Probably would. Anyways, there was that guy on this thing, and he was tearing somebody up about something. I, I, I can't even really remember the rest of what happened, but I do remember this one comment. Uh, and it really represented someone who doubted that God could be trusted. And I don't know what all his motivations were, but this is what he said. If God was real, <clears throat> he wouldn't play hide-and-seek with us like this. He would do something to make his existence and intentions more obvious. And I can barely describe to you accurately the emotion that this sentence invoked in me. I, I think exasperation is probably the closest I could get, but it was to the point that, like, have you ever eaten wasabi? And when you eat wasabi, like, it makes your brainstem tingle? Like, that happened emotionally, right? I, w I wasn't eating anything. And, and like... I felt this visceral response because I'm thinking, like, what, what do you mean, right? Like, even, first of all, let's, let's just start. Let's just start with this, this blue marble hanging in space that we live on. Like, like, let's just take creation for an example, right? The fact that we live on, on a planet that's circling around a sun that is, just happens to be the right one that, that won't fry you if you're, you know, in the same solar system as it, and, and it's not too small to be able to supply the kind of light and heat that we need to live. We've got the right sun. We're in the right kind of solar system, a Milky Way with spiral arms so that we're not getting barraged by meteors all the time. Okay, so eh, that could be coincidence, but now we're third planet out, just so far from the sun, 93 million miles or so, that we don't burn to a crisp, but don't freeze to death. We've got one moon. One moon. What does that matter? Well, that matters because that controls the tides on this big experiment of a glass ball with water and oxygen that God made for us. If it wasn't for the moon being the size that it is, having the gravitational pull upon our oceans, they would be huge, nasty, scummy ponds with no life in them. So we've got a moon, we've got a planet, we've got a sun. What about biological life? Let's leave astronomy for a minute. I can tell you don't like that very much. Let's go to biology. What, what are you talking about, man? I understand there was a time when people could believe that life, and, and, and it, it's, it was an intelligent inference, right, to, to see that there are comparisons and there are close features between different species and even different kinds of animals. There, there are organs and, and, and structures that all seem to look the same. That makes total sense. But when, when you get to the point where you, you have an electron microscope and you, and you can actually look down inside of a cell, the simplest building block of life, and you can see inside and actually realize that what we thought was just a little blob of plasm that we didn't really know what it did, we find out that a cell is an incredibly complex machine with the ability to replicate itself and know what kind of cell it's supposed to be. A bunch of little parts, irreducibly complex, 
with the fingerprints of design all over them, my whole point to all of that is, brother, creation itself screams the existence of a creator, okay? And so God did not put us in this big, giant, pasty, white bowl of oatmeal with no beauty and leave us without evidence, even in just what he made, that he is incredibly creative and incredibly powerful, and that he exists. Okay, that's creation. Secondly, he gave us his word, right? We have scriptures from God, God breathed, that have stood the test of time, full of prophecy, written hundreds of years before events, and then we have scripture telling us that those events came to pass. We have the wisdom and the beauty of these scriptures that has been under attack from the time it was compiled and has existed and has stood that test of time. And many, many people have declared that God and his scriptures would be dead and they are dead, and the scriptures are still here, and we're here today celebrating the truth that they declare, okay? You've got creation, you've got his word, fulfilled prophecy, all of those prophecies, all of those things pointing forward. Then you've got Jesus, right? God, if God, if God was real, he wouldn't play hide and seek with us like this. He came right out in the open, man. He came to earth as a man, lived a perfect life, healed withered hands, healed leprosy, fed thousands of people with tiny bits of food, did incredible miracles, and left a legacy that has resounded down through history. God did not play hide and seek. And to, to top all that off, he did all those miracles, ends up going to the cross, dying in our place for our sin, and then he rises from the grave and shows himself risen from the grave to hundreds of people who write it down. That doesn't sound like hide-and-seek to me. Right? And if you're going to say, well, that happened a long time ago, I don't know if I can believe that. Well, I mean, the Egyptians built the pyramids a long time ago. Are you, going to, you can't believe in the pyramids then? Well, it happened a long time ago, I don't know. They're still there, man. There, there is a big, triangular stone structure rising about the desert saying, hey, somebody built me. The church of Jesus Christ, millions and millions of people from the time that he was on this earth, left this earth, breathed upon his disciples, said, go therefore and tell people there's good news and hope because of me. Man, there, there's a monument standing far higher than any pyramid could ever hope to, declaring the truth and reality and the beauty of this God who made us and saved us through his son. God has not played hide-and-seek, friends. There is evidence. I, I know that there's a philosophical debate about the, the essence of proving things, whether you can actually prove anything, which is, you know, if people want to sit and talk about it, I don't have time for that. I, I realize, though, that proving the existence of God in a, in a scientifically satisfying way is probably not going to happen. A, a ironclad proof. I mean, philosophers would tell you you can't prove that you're sitting here right now. So there you go. But let's leave that alone. In a scientific way. Let's leave the philosophers out of it. In a scientific way. I realize we can't prove God, but man... There's something to be said for logic and, and, and reasonableness. Like, with all of the evidence we have, what is the most reasonable assertion? And I think um, with each passing decade and the more we understand about how creation works, the more we understand about science and things of that nature, the more it becomes increasingly clear. Somebody much smarter and much more powerful than us uh, had something to do with our existence. And I think... Um, Part of God's vision for the church is that we rise up and it's in such love and power and such anointing of the Holy Spirit that uh, we become even more so than we have been another undeniable testimony to the reality of God in the world. Uh, that's part, part of what we're supposed to do as his followers. So I think there is evidence to be found. Um, I don't think you have to be an unreasonable, unthinking fool um, to believe in the God of the Bible or to trust these scriptures. Um, but in the way of proof, I guess that's what I'm asking you. If, if you're somebody that has said or thought, I'm, I'm going to need proof, I'm going gonna, I'm I'm gonna to ask you, and you don't have to agree, but I'm going to ask you to suspend that for a second and, and come, come maybe to a more reasonable position because there's a lot of things you believe that you can't prove, okay? But what I'm going to ask you to do is come, come one step back from, from that kind of safety hatch away from the conversation, and let's talk about what's reasonable. Let's talk about what the evidence points to. Let's talk about... What is, what is the most probable 
outcome based on everything we can see. All right? Um, I think that will open you up to the possibility of God changing you and drawing you close to him, which is what you were made for, where you're going to find a lot more joy, a lot more peace, uh, and a lot more purpose. Um, I want to show you something, and it might seem like a minor detail in this story, but I believe uh, it shows that God has not only revealed himself in big, obvious ways, like we just talked about, but he is so loving and considerate to us that he even, in the little details, uh, I think he's made his intentions and his invitation to us perfectly clear. Uh, Let's read verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 28 again, okay? It says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Okay? I don't normally do this to you, but, but midstream here, I'm going to ask you to, to flip pages, because I want to show you something else that, that's going to, I think, make that what seems like a minor detail, maybe, um, even more beautiful and powerful. So turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 19 and 20 together, okay? A lot of times I would just reference it, but since I'm building a case here, I want you to put your own eyes on these verses with me, okay? So John chapter 20, a couple, uh, couple books towards the back. John chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 19 and 20, okay? I'm going to show you something here that I think makes those two verses we just read even more magnificent Uh, and more so a clear declaration of Jesus' invitation to us and his intentions for us, okay? I'm in John chapter 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Uh, That's absolutely the right response. Rejoice, right? Amen to that. I'm glad they did. Here's what I want to show you. Um, And this is not the only place that this is made clear. It it says uh, in verse 19, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were. So the point of that is for you to understand that the doors were all shut, and when Jesus appears here, he didn't use the door, that Jesus was in the room, right? Now, I can't tell you if he came through the wall. I can't tell you if a glorified, resurrected body has some type of nightcrawler teleportation powers. I'm crossing my fingers that that's true because I'm going to get one of those resurrection bodies one day according to the scriptures, and that would be cool. You can call me a comic book geek all you want. If you don't want to be able to think about where you want to go and be able to go there, then I'm afraid for you, man. You need some more spice in your life or something, because teleportation would be awesome. All right? I don't know, though. I don't understand exactly. We don't know exactly what it means that Jesus was able to be in that room all of a sudden with a resurrected body. He's not a spirit, right? Remember, Jesus rose from the dead bodily. It's very important. Ate fish in front of the disciples. Let Thomas touch the wounds. His body rose from the grave. Well, why is that so important? Because the Bible says he's the firstborn, he's the first one to go that route, and we're following after him, right? And so our bodies one day are going to be resurrected, uh, and we just want to know the truth about it anyways, and that's the truth about it. Jesus rose bodily from the grave. He's not a spirit here, but he does still show up in a room when all the doors were shut, okay? Uh, and that's not the only time it happened. Verse 26, uh, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, stood in their midst, said, peace be with you. Uh, it might be the fact that he's using this, this teleportation or walking through walls, power, or whatever, that might be part of the reason he starts with peace be with you both times he comes in, because I'm sure the disciples had a little bit of a, they were shook, I'm sure, uh, when all of a sudden King Jesus shows up and they didn't hear the hinges on the door creak or anything. Um, but anyways, so make sure you understand, I'm, I'm bringing this up to you, that Jesus showed up in a couple rooms post-resurrection, uh, and clearly was not limited by the same physical limitations that our physical bodies are, okay? He is, he is a resurrected, uh, both body and soul, but body and spirit, but uh, he's not encumbered somehow by the same limitations we have, okay? So I want you to see that. 
What does that have to do with the other two verses? All right, let's, let's go back. Did you keep your finger there? I didn't tell you to. That wasn't very considerate. But we're going back, okay? So let's go Matthew 28. Let's go back there. I know you're not supposed to they say it in preacher school. Don't make them turn verses in the middle of the sermon. They'll get lost and they won't listen. You guys know your Bibles, though. I know you can do this. You're with me, right? It's Easter, baby. Let's turn some verses. You ready? I'm about to show you something here. I know some, maybe some of you made the connection already why this matters or what, what the connection is, but I want to show you something here that, that is going to, I think, solidify even more the intention uh, and the beauty of God's invitation through the resurrection to us. It's going to show us something of, of the way he works, okay? So we see in the book of John that post-resurrection, Jesus is not limited the same way we are physically. He can either move around, move through stuff. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but he doesn't need doors, right? The first two verses here, uh, I'm going to read verse 2 of chapter 28 again. Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone away and sat upon it. Here's my question to you. If after the resurrection, Jesus can enter rooms where all the doors are shut, then why did the angel roll the stone away? The stone wasn't moved that day, so the resurrected Lord of glory could come out of the tomb. It was moved so that we could come in. And this is part of the beauty of the way God works. This is part of the beauty of how detailed he is. I told you, he's made himself obvious in really big, obvious ways through creation, through the totality of his word, through miracles and incredible things he's done throughout the redemptive history of his people. But even in small details, God is handling the culmination of, of, of the redemption plan, Jesus is rising from the grave, and he's not only thinking about what all that means in the spirit realm and all that's, be, all that's happening there, God's got this detail in mind to send this angel down to go down and move that rock out of the way so that his disciples could come in, so that his disciples could see with their own eyes that spot where the Savior laid. He was no longer there. Praise God for that. Jesus didn't need the stone to move. I'm pretty sure he could have moved it himself. He didn't need an angel to come do it. He was already out of there. The stone didn't move to let Jesus out. The stone moved to let us come in. Friends, do, you, do, do we see why this matters? God isn't inviting us to a relationship based on faith with no facts. Okay, He has not asked us to shut down the minds he gave us in order to believe. He is also not unaware that we may struggle with doubt. That's why in the same way the angel said, come, see the place where he was lying. Jesus also told Thomas, come, reach with your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it in my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. The repetitive and resounding call of God throughout all of history has been, come, come close. I want you near me. And I will do absolutely everything necessary, no matter the cost, to have you. God knows that part of the mental faculties he gives us is going to struggle with the idea of grace and redemption and resurrection and the supernatural. And he, he understands our frame is weak. And that's why he will do incredibly gracious things like when Thomas is doubting him after he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And after all the rest of the disciples are saying, yeah, we saw the risen Lord Jesus, Thomas is like, nope. I'm not going to believe till I touch the wounds. What does Jesus do? Does he come in with a, with a hyssop branch and whip him in the eyes with it? What do you mean? No. Jesus comes in, gentle and loving, says, come here, Thomas, come here. Come close to me. Put your finger right here. Feel that hole. Here. Put your hand right here. Feel this wound in my side. Jesus isn't afraid of your doubts. He can handle those. Come close to him. Let him work with you. Let him love on you. The closer you get to him, the clearer you're going to see things. The resurrection is the crescendo of this loving call. And God is so brilliant and so considerate that he even remembered to move the stone so the disciples could see the empty tomb for themselves. Friends, our God has done much more than enough to prove that he is real and good and powerful, if we'll just consider it. He has made a declaration through the resurrection of complete and total victory over sin and death, and then he has invited us to join him 
in that victory by faith. We don't have to follow Jesus to the cross, literally. The Bible does say that to follow him, we're going to pick up our cross daily. Uh, that means that we are going to bear, to some degree, uh, a, a burden in following him. But he says in, in the very same breath that his burden is easy and light. And so part of the beauty of walking with God and, and caring about what he cares about is that uh, he adds his power to yours to get done whatever it is he asks you to do. But we don't have to go to the cross. We don't have to die a sinner's death um, in order to pay the price that we actually deserve, right? That's, I hopefully, we, we understand the, the, the beauty of the exchange that happened. Jesus upon the cross, after being tortured, beaten, humiliated, and stripped naked, having nails driven through the most sensitive nerve centers of his body, hanging there, bleeding to death, open and exposed. I, I hope that we understand that him doing that, paying that horrendous price was him paying the price that you and I owed. That absolutely is the debt we should have paid. But the problem is, even if we would have hung on the cross like him, it wouldn't have paid the debt. Because there had to be a sinless, spotless Lamb of God, perfect, willing to step in and absorb that, be that final atoning sacrifice, and pay the price for us. Jesus Bible says in one place, for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. Can you think about that, man? What's the joy set before him? Man, that's you. The joy set before him was you. He wanted you. And so he submitted himself to that humiliating, torturous death upon the cross. What a good God. I know there's difficult things in the world, guys. I know there's evil. I know there's personal stuff going on in your life that sometimes you're tempted to think how... Is God really good? Please, friend, every single time that happens, would you, would, you, would you discipline your mind to go back to the cross and then come out again and say, yes, he is good? What kind of God, what kind of king steps in and takes that kind of treatment from the ones he created in order to save them? What humility, what love, what perfect, holy, beautiful affection for his creation, the sacrifice, the good Good fails miserably to describe what he is. He's amazing. He's a perfect savior. I would, I would plead with you today, friends, please don't let fears or doubts keep you from him today. If you've stayed away from Jesus because you have doubted him or feared he would let you down, please come close. That's his call to you. Examine the evidence for yourself. Seek the truth, really, and believe. If you've been close to Jesus and, and loved and trusted him with all your heart at one time, but you've been distracted or, or pulled back because of difficulty in this life or because of sin, please remember how beautiful it is that though we have done nothing to deserve it, our creator king wants us to draw near to him and he has promised to draw near to us. Your God, your creator, the king of glory, wants to be near you. For some of you, doubt stands in the way. For some of you, sin stands in the way. For some of you, it's just laziness and apathy. It's, some of you, it's distraction. Some of you are confused. But I'm, 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 I'm just, I want to settle today in no uncertain terms, friends, where God stands in this. His clear call to us is come. Come close. I want you near me. And I've done everything necessary to make provision for that to be possible. That's where he's at, friend. Where are you at? What will you do with a God that good and a call that beautiful? Let me read you these verses from Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." But let's draw near with a sincere heart, friends, for he who promised is faithful. I know people have let you down. I know you've tried this before. I know you've been burnt before. God's not like them. God can't fail you. He's perfect. His character won't allow it. Every promise he's made, he's gonna, he's gonna, it's going to come good, man. God is not going to make a promise and not 
hold it up. It's not going to happen. It can't happen. He proved that when Jesus died on the cross and three days later rose from the grave, man. If there was going to be a promise that was going to be hard to keep, it was going to be that one. Woo! But he plowed right through that one. Didn't even break a sweat. Come on now. And now we see in light of that, that's, that's what Hebrews 10, that's why I just read you that. You know why I read you that? Because Hebrews 10 is telling us in light of what Jesus has done, his death and resurrection, because we understand that what that's doing is, is it's declaring that victory has been won over sin and death, so that problem's out of the way, and then it also is at the same time a resounding invitation calling us to come close, to draw near, is what the writer of Hebrews says. Let your heart and your conscience be cleaned by the power of the mercy and grace of God. The resurrection is not only an invitation for us to come and personally experience the peace and joy and hope of restored relationship with our God, it also lays upon us a light and beautiful burden to invite others as well. The resurrection, friends, is an invitation to participation in the glorious mission of getting the good news about Jesus to as many people as possible. You see, this invitation extends beyond just you. Come close. I love you. I've died for you. You see, what happens invariably as you begin to answer that invitation, that beautiful invitation that, that pours forth out of the resurrection, that, listen, the problem of sin and death, that thing that held us apart, that's out of the way. And now, this, the, so that's the declaration of victory, and now the invitation is, so come close. Come near to me. Don't be afraid. Bring all your doubts and your fears. Bring your frailties and your imperfections. I know all about them. You, whatever you think you're hiding, I already know about it. And still, the God of the universe is saying to you, come here. Come close to me. I love you. And as that happens, and as the, the, the closer you get to him, and the more you begin to hear his voice, and the more you begin to understand how he thinks and how he operates, and the, the more you begin to taste and see that he is good, the more you experience the profound beauty and the unimaginable, unexplainable depth of his perfect love, the more that grips you, the more that begins then to pour forth out of you. You see, this is not just an invitation for you to come personally, get close to the master of the universe. It's an invitation also for you to join in what he's doing, because God is not just sitting idly. Understand that. He is on a mission. He's been on a mission ever since Adam and Eve took that bite of that fruit in the garden. He's been on a mission to get it back the way he designed it, which was nothing in between him and the children that he loves. And he doesn't just call you to come and enjoy the goodness of salvation. There's an invitation for you to then participate with him in his redemptive work. He is working a plan, and this thing is going to come down to a finite point. And when he says, I'm done. It's done. Every single enemy, always, and for, for there, there's going to, here's the thing. We got to make sure we explain this. The resurrection absolutely was a victory and the victory over death and sin. What that doesn't mean is between the resurrection and Jesus' return, that the, the forces of evil still are not able to run amok and do their best to cause problems in the world. They're defeated. Believers have been given the authority of the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us to not have to uh, believe deceptions and lies from the enemy uh, and be overcome by him. Uh, however, uh, the, the enemy does still, uh, the Bible says, walk around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Essentially, he, he's running around telling lies, seeing if he can get someone to believe them. That is still going on, but I'm telling you, friends, uh, th this, this is not the end of the thing, Right? Jesus has said when he finally comes and returns, he's going to set his foot upon the neck of that lion, and he's going to squeeze, and he ain't going to roar anymore. He's not going to have any breath. There's going to be a total final victory, man, and, and he, he won't even be able to, to, to meow, much less roar. It's over for him. It's done. Praise God. We are, we are invited to participate right now in, in, in a victorious life. Not in a um, nothing bad will ever happen to me because God said so kind of way, but in a even if bad stuff happens to me, I'm going to praise him anyways and be full of joy because I know if all I have is that ultimate final promise, he's done enough for me to, to never, ever back down and never, ever feel like I lost. What's going to happen, man? You're going to die? Guess what? You just won. Cashed in your ticket, man. Praise God. For the Christian, death is victory. How do I, 
How do I know the resurrection is also a call that we participate with God in what he's doing in the earth? Well, because Jesus risen from the grave uh, kind of made it pretty clear. Let's, let's start in, uh, we're in, we're in Matthew 28 still. Let's look at verse 16. Let's just read to the end again. What, what, did, what did Jesus think his resurrection meant? What, what, did, what did Jesus think the implications of his resurrection were for those who were going to claim to follow him? But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Friends, the sound of that angel grabbing that rock and rolling out of the way, that sound reverberates down through all of history. It is a constant call to us. Every barrier between you and the God that made you has been removed. They're out of the way, and that, that, that sound of that rock moving, man, is to let you know God desires closeness with you, and not just him and you, and that's it, but also that as you get close to him, you're going to have this, this automatic desire to invite others then to come partake of that same beautiful relationship, which is what we were made for. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that God... It, 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 He's so big, it's hard to think of him thinking of all the little details and, and being so considerate of us, right? I mean, Jesus could have, it could have went any other way. Jesus, did, the stone didn't have to be moved. Jesus could have just showed up to everybody, but, but God, knew that, God knew that even though everything Jesus had done and everything Jesus had said, how is this true? I don't know, but he knew that there would still be some all the way to the point where they're staring at resurrected Jesus on the mountain right before he says these final things. He says they worshiped him, but some doubted. God knew that there would be those that would struggle with doubt. And in consideration and in beautiful love and mercy for them, he sends an angel. He says, move that rock out of the way. I want them to be able to get in here and see. I want, them to, I want them to see the spot where they laid him a few days ago. I want them to see the burial shroud sitting there and, and the headscarf off to the side. I want them to see every bit of this, and I want them to be able to calculate what it means. God's not calling you to a mindless faith. God's not calling you to some belief system that can't be validated in any way. He doesn't want you to not use the intelligence he gave you. He wants you to use that, but also understand there's going to come to a point. We're going to look at all the evidence, and by the end of it, there is going to come a point where we can't prove for sure in a scientific way what things are, and that's where faith comes in. But my encouragement to you today is that that faith is a reasonable faith. It's not something that requires you being foolish or ignorant or unable to think of all the facts. You can be smart and love Jesus. You know that? I know a lot of you do. Most of you in here are pretty smart, and you love Jesus. I'm thankful for that. But in case there's somebody here within the sound of my voice that thought those two things couldn't go together, I want you to know, our faith is not foolish. There is very reasonable uh, facts and evidences. Um, and aside from that, aside from that, if you've been in a place for a long time of, of not, just w not willing to deal with it or I haven't seen anything compelling enough, I, I, I would just ask you, Seek God in truth. God, God is a gracious, compassionate God. God sent an angel to move that stone so that we could see the empty tomb. Jesus himself let Thomas touch his wounds. God will meet you where you're at. God will compassionately and mercifully come and deal with you right where you're at. Reach out to him. Come close to him as much as you are able. Draw near to him, friend. He'll draw near to you. His promise is true. May we be a people who rejoice in the resurrection as a declaration of victory over Satan's sin and death. May we receive the resurrection as an invitation to live as we were made to in close relationship with our God. And may we let his perfect love for us so fill us that we can't help but love other people. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, uh, for these verses. Thank you um, for your scriptures that are true. Thank you that you did rise from the grave. Thank you for all that it means, God. I doubt that we have uh, the, the, the ability with our finite faculties to even truly grasp the depth, width, and breadth of all the resurrection means. But God, as much as we are able, help us to continually marvel at the beauty of the fact that you did die for our sins in our place as the atoning sacrifice that we needed. But you also rose from the grave. You conquered sin and death. Lord, please help us. Please help us that the resurrection never becomes a common thing to us. Help us, God, to not, not be able as your people to think about the fact that you declared exactly what would happen, that they would try to destroy you, but three days later you would rise from the grave, and then you did exactly what you said. May the beauty of that fulfilled promise, Lord, may it help us in the midst of our struggles today. And may we never, ever be able to think of the power of your resurrection and it just be another fact to us, just another piece of information among many others. But God, may we understand that it sits upon the top in importance that its relevance extends into everything. If you did not rise from the grave, then we should be pitied for believing the gospel. But you did. And if you didn't rise from the grave, there is no hope. There is no reason for joy. There is no purpose. There's nothing to look forward to. There's nothing, no reason to have hope in this life. But because you did rise from the grave, there is absolutely always hope both in this life, in the midst of trial and difficulty, but also for eternity. I thank you, God, that you have made absolutely clear not only your existence, but your intentions. I thank you, God, that you continually call to us. You continually, Lord, through what you do and through what you've said in your word, you make this continual loving call for us to come close to you. Lord, help us to want that. Hopefully it's settled in our minds that what you want is to be near us, God. May we want that too. And I ask, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, if there are things in our lives that, that we want more than that, that you would come and remove them, even if it hurts us. God, I ask you would take anything out of the way that would stomp, stop us from wanting more than anything else the same thing you want, which is close, intimate relationship with you. God, as, as we grow closer to you, I ask you to kin, re, just stir in us, Lord. Kindle up this burning flame of fire in us, to not only enjoy you for ourselves, but to share the beauty of your gospel with others. May you be glorified in this. Thank you that you are our resurrected king. We worship you, Master, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.